I don't know whether I ought to reminisce with all this crowd here or not, or whether I should try to make a lead. I'm kind of like the guy that inherited a, an estate over in the old country, and he inherited along with it a harem. So that evening, while they all filed through, showing their wares, and the matron says, well, pick out one. He said, well, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I don't know where to start. <laughs> so I don't hardly know where to start tonight, but I think I'll tell you a little bit of something about what this gentleman here, Ed, has been wondering about. I was one of the original members of the Valley Group, which was formed in 1947 in January. And in 46, I took on the job to clean the hall for two weeks in the St. James cafeteria to get the building for free. So one or two guys came out and helped me. So we had our first meeting out there about the middle of November or the first of December in 45. Then in 46, we started. I said 47, 46. But I had only been a member in the fellowship since June the 2nd or 17th of 1946. I had a brother in ahead of me, and uh, I wasn't sure about this job because we hadn't been speaking for two years, and <clears throat> I didn't know what had happened, but I knew that something had happened to Charlie, and I took it for granted he tried everything else, and I had too. So I thought he might have got religion, but uh, and I didn't know what kind, but I, if it was helping him, I thought, well, that's a good thing, because he's nothing but a drunk, and I still considered myself at that time a social drinker. I drank anything, any place, any time with anybody, and I figured that that was not, had anything to do with alcoholism, as I'd been told it was. So anyway, uh, we started this group, and... I was brand new. Some of the older ones that were in, I had a list of all of them. It's like Ab Season Good was there and been in for quite a while. Malcolm Chandler and Morton Bruce and the guys that some of you fellas and girls know. So they helped me along. So I came down to the first meeting. Now I hadn't been down here to a meeting because that time, during that stage of AA, they didn't bring you in until you were stone sober, they said, and that was about two weeks. It took me about a week before I got sobered up. So I was working on probation, I guess, until they brought me down here. So we got down here and we had a fellow, I'm not going to mention his name because he was embarrassed by it, and uh, I was too, as far as that was concerned. So uh, I saw he got up here and made a lead. And everything about every other word he used was a curse word, intermingled with the Lord Jesus Christ and so on. And I thought, well, hell, if that's the way it is, I can hear that all over the town in every saloon. Incidentally, you people have got to dry up Hamilton County and from the looks of the crowd in here. <laughs> we didn't have this many then when we had our wives along. But anyway... After it was over, why, I thought, well, I'll tell this sucker. So I went up there and I told him he was blaspheming and a few other things, you know, about what an alcoholic would do. 
And I didn't want no part of it. So we had an attorney that was blunt as all uh, too much used cold chisel. And he said, what's the matter with you? I said, ain't nothing the matter with me. But I, I believe that guy is blaspheming and burying on down here with religion. That's not religion. He said, well, if you don't like it, go on out. And I thought, well, you son of a bitch, you. Who are you to tell me to get out? He said, if you don't like it, get out. That's all. That's simple. And two or three guys told me that. And I guess that's what kept me in here. But I kept coming, and I came about every night. Because every time I'd turn around, there was a guy there at the house knocking on the door, coming to AA. And I'd come down to AA. So I don't know how many days or nights, rather, that I came every night, day in and day out, night. So, after I got up to the point where I had rewritten the big book and changed around through rules and regulations to suit me, why, I really got with it. But I'll tell you, when they got me, and I got sober, and things began to settle out, I don't know how in the world it was ever accomplished. So anybody that can make this fellowship work and work for me, you don't have any worry from here on out. Because I'll tell you something. I never had a drink until after I was 18 years old. I hadn't even had a glass of wine or anything, a drink of any kind of an alcoholic beverage until I was 18. I came out of school and was enrolled in college and I met a bunch of guys and they was drinking and I didn't say for sure I liked it, but I did enjoy the way I felt. And I had been in there just six weeks and I come unrolled. And it was because we went to the class drunk. So they said next year if I wanted to come back and be all right. So I went home and the old man said, what's the matter? I said, well, I got run out of college. And he said, well, you're going to start working from here on out. So I started working, but I didn't stop drinking. And I didn't know anything about liquor. I didn't know anything about it at all. And my brother hadn't been drinking because he was sick. He only had one lung, and he didn't start drinking until he was long in 30s before he started drinking. But I didn't increase, but I, I didn't, drink, didn't think anything about it. What was, what was in the offing. So as time went on, and it is progressive disease, as you well know, all of you know that, I'm not telling you anything, but it got to the point where I had to do something about it because everybody in the family was telling me what should be done and what had to be done, and uh, my mom and all of them was on me all the time. Now, I wasn't drunk all the time, but I got obnoxious. And I was too little to get a novice out in the public, but I always took it out at home. And I, uh, I was having a rough time. So I bought a brand new Chrysler Roadster. Incidentally, I had the first Chrysler Roadster that Joe Albers got in the city of Cincinnati when he first came out. And man, let me tell you something. You get a Chrysler Roadster or any kind of a Roadster, and you can get all the people who have more friends. You just can't believe the amount of friends you can get and how many women you can get with a roadster. But I got this drunk as all get out because they was footing the bill. 
So after a while, I got to the point where I kind of began to run out. They was afraid to ride with me. And the dad was getting disgusted, so he said, Now look, he said, one more drunk and you're out. He said, you're not even going to board at home no more. So one more drunk and he, guy went in the office and he was raising cane. So I took the keys off of my holder and I sold them down. I said, now look, there's your keys. You can go to hell. I'm running the business anyhow. So you just run it in the ground. But I made a grave mistake. I left the key to the gas pump on the ring and I soon ran out of money for gasoline. So I picked up with a guy that wanted to go somewhere and I said, hey, I know a guy over in Peoria, Illinois. Let's go there. So we went to Peoria, Illinois. So I met a the man over there that was a paint salesman and he knew my dad so I made a touch on him right quick and he took me around and got us a job and things went pretty good till I got fired over there and then I came back to Cincinnati of course I didn't have any other recourse I wasn't equipped for anything but making trouble was the only thing I was equipped for so I came back home and I waited until my dad was gone I knew that everybody would be gone but Mom, and I went in. Mom said, well, goodness gracious, what brings you home? I said, I'm going to get married. She said, get married, who to? And I said, well, I'm going to marry Ruby. Well, I'd known her ever since we was little kids, and we always agreed that when we got done running around with other ones, well, we was going to get married. So I went over, and she was surprised to see me, and she said, well, what are you doing here? And I said, well... You've been wanting to get married, and I come over to get married. <laughs> she said, who told you I wanted to get married? <laughs> so I said, well, don't you? I said, you always said you was going to marry me. And she said, I don't know about that. You've been doing a lot of drinking lately. So, and her mother hated me like a purple passion. She was so religious, her ears was on the wrong side of her head. <laughs> I mean... She didn't approve of my drinking at all. So anyway, we finally convinced them that I was going to quit drinking. Now here's a surprise for some of you guys that quit after a short period of time in AA and think it's all over. I didn't, after we got married and I settled down, went back in visits with my dad, and I didn't have a drink for almost three years. And our first daughter was born. And one of the men on Saturday came up over, over to my house and wanted to buy a bar or something. And I let him have it, and he said, How about a drink? And I said, No, I'm not drinking. He said, Why, well, gosh, you got a new baby and don't even take a drink? I said, No, I don't want anything to drink. So he said, Well, come on down. I'm going to get a drink and take a coat. I went down there, and I finally took a bottle of beer drank that and he said oh come on take a drink and I took a drink and from that day till I came into Alcoholics Anonymous I was without drink that's a God's truth so help me God so three years was sobriety I was determined I was going to make a go of this thing and I bought a house and everything and I could have retired in 20 years easily but anyhow Things then begin to go bad, but it didn't go bad all at once. It gradually increases, as you guys and gals know. It kind of sneaks up behind you and gets you by the back of the neck. 
and then you're lost, sure enough. So, I never will forget the day after several years of drinking, I'd been called by the, the building and loan that I must do something about the property. So, we was a little building and loan right across from this saloon. And I was in this saloon, and after the building loan closed, it was only open on one night, and that was Friday night, and that's the night it got paid, and that's the night it got drunker than it did all the rest of the nights. So Mr. Ringland come in, and I seen him come in, so I kept my head turned away, but he seen me, and he come up. He said, uh, I thought you was coming over to the building loan, the building loan night, excuse me. And I said, well, now I'll tell you, if you want that damn house, you take it. Because I was among friends there, and I didn't want to be act like it was a little, and that's what he done. <laughs> so, I knew I made a mistake, but you don't rectify them until after you get to think about it a little while, see. But anyway, things got bad to worse and bad to worse. So Ruby left me. I'm going to cut out a lot of my drinking, because you guys know what it's all about. My wife left me, so I thought, well, I was good riddance. By that time, I had another daughter, and they wouldn't give me any money, and Dad says, you're either going to work or you're not going to get any, and I was getting almost unable to work. So I drank anything that came along. It didn't make any difference. I had totally given up, and I began to look for things, and I thought about going to church. I thought about different things that I'd heard about that was good for you. Don't drink till 11 o'clock in the morning. Don't drink till 4 in the afternoon. Don't drink till after it's real dark. And then drink <laughs> real early. And that's the only, only rule you ought to abide by, because nobody can see you then after you do get plastered. But anyway, I tried all them time intervals, and I tried everything that anybody else said. I'll tell you one that happened. I was invited, my wife and I, this is prior to when she left, to a big wing ding, and I wanted to meet some people up there because there was a lot of wealthy people, and I thought I'd collected a few that I could hit up now and then for something because I could get some from, through my folks. I could, they felt sorry for him, and they'd give me a little bit of something now and then, but they'd always give it to you out of, so they'd think, well, now he won't come back no more because he won't pay me back and I'll be rid of him. And that's exactly what they had me figured out pretty good, to tell you the truth. But anyway, I wanted to go up there and I got ready and I had to get a new suit. So I got a light suit and I'd been drinking. And uh, so somebody in one of the bars or some I don't know where I heard, but they said if you drank four tablespoonful of mineral oil, you would never get drunk. Because <laughs> you could drink anything you wanted to drink. So I... Didn't have any tablespoons, so I took a couple of swigs out of that bottle. And uh, well, just before we left, I took another couple of belts, and got up there and took a few shots, and boy, whiskey was running around there like crazy. And uh, so we got up there kind of late, and uh, some of them was pretty tipsy, and they'd be pouring them a drink, and they'd pour you one. And so sometime along during the evening, why? I thought, boy, there's something wrong here. My my stomach was rolling. I showed up, wasn't getting any drunker, but it was a disaster. So I backed up. <laughs> it's, it's funny now, but it wasn't then. I backed out, 
and I know everybody thought most of them knew what was the matter because they couldn't see it, they could smell it. <laughs> but that didn't help. But anyway, uh, that after that was uh, that was the last straw. That's when the next day really was gone. So then I really turned on. I drank up everything I could get a hold of. But I run into another friend of mine who had come back to town and he had some money and I really got on his belly. And I was living in a little old one-room apartment, it's called an apartment, down in Ellenwood, in an old building they called the Red Onion. Maybe some of you know where it's at. Glenn Carr might know where it's at. But it wasn't in one of the best areas, Elmwood. It was right down on the railroad track. But it didn't matter about trains unless you was considering suicide. But I'd heard, I'd heard a few of these suicide jobs, you know. They'd go in the basement and drop and jump out the window. <laughs> I heard one guy went in, turned on the gas, and went out and sat down on the back porch and was going to fix the aid himself. <laughs> yeah, all kinds of, you know, alcoholics are screwing a monkey with a toothpick. Oh, I tell you, it's terrible. But anyway, sometime along during the next day, I had a set of DTs. And I never had them, and I didn't know what they was, but I don't want no more of them. I know that. And you know, it's a funny thing. Jenny, have you ever had DTs? How many of you had DTs? You know, it's a funny thing. One side of my brain says, you're nuts. And another side said, that's his soul. And then they changed sides, and you could hear one thing on one side and one on the other. And you could swear somebody was talking to you, you know? And you look, and you think, well, where in the hell did that guy go? And I was a thrashing around in there, and I don't know how long. And somebody knocked on the door. You know, it had a three-legged stool in there. It was one of them that the legs stuck in a hole in the seat. And there wasn't no back on it, but every time you move that stool, one leg would fall off. And I was having hell time sitting on that stool. <laughs> I finally got up and went to the door, and the landlady said, here's a gentleman to see you. Well, I'd had a lot of gentlemen come to see me. So he come in, and he was well-dressed. And I thought, well, here's another attorney going to sue me. So I said, well, he can't get blood out of a turnip, but they can worry the hell out of you, I'll tell you that, <laughs> even when you're drinking. So he come in, and he said, hi, Emmett. Said hi, and he said you been having a rough time, ain't you? No, oh, I don't know. I said, what do you want? He said, uh, I just come in to see what you look like when you were drunk. And I, you know, I couldn't get it all in my head, and everything he said, and it didn't make sense to me at all. And uh, so he said, uh, I'm not going to stay long, uh, but I want to tell you, I can tell you how you can stay sober. And I said, well, what I need is a drink. And he said, I know you do, but you ain't going to get none from me. So I said, well, you might as well leave. So he left. And from that was, I understand from her, it was Saturday morning when this guy came in there. And who it was was ab-season, so he know who it was. So was guys come one right after the other, two at a time, three at a time, come in there. And I couldn't figure it out, and I couldn't see half see who it was or know who they were. Here's another boy that's dead and gone, God bless his soul, little Johnny Lang. He only had one hand. Had got it cut off up 
up at Sharonville, drunk, and lay down on a track. And he would have committed suicide, but he didn't get enough of his body on her. He just got his hand on the rail. But anyway, I got enough sense. So I asked him, I said, well, how do you stay sober? He said, well, it's a long story. You get sober and we'll tell you. We'll show you. We'll do all about it. You don't have to do anything. Just don't drink. So anyway, I said, how long have you been sober? He said, two weeks. Uh, well, he is sober, that's for sure. Another guy was sober for six months, you know. They had various times, but it worked that way. So after two weeks or three weeks, that's when I cleaned out out there. I had to have something to do. And Father, uh, what was his name then? It, out of the church where we met. Well, anyway... He give me a, he he uh, fed me and gave me the job cleaning that out. And the boys would stop by to see if I was all right. So after that time, I come down in AA. So I began to come, and I got rubbed the wrong way all the time. Everybody was rubbing me the wrong way until I began to realize that some of them was talking sense. Then Charlie tried to talk to me and. I didn't want to know part of him yet either. And uh, but I kept going and kept kept coming. I didn't have a car, but they stopped by and bring me down here. So I began to realize that I was feeling a little bit better. And things was going along pretty good because I'd went back to work with dad and I hadn't got Rudy back yet, but she was verge, I was worrying her so she would come back, but I'd got an appointment again. So Along about the second year, the thing that really put the, the touch on the fellowship of alcoholics for me, a man and his wife came in and it was the most pitiful sight I've ever laid my eyes on. And I talked to them that night, and it's the first time in my life that I'd ever tried to talk to somebody to help me. I was always ready to criticize them and tell them what they was doing wrong, but I was... God's only person that was perfect. I was absolutely perfect. Even when I was drunk, I was perfect. I knew everything. Did you ever go in a saloon and guys would be arguing about changing the Mississippi River over a little or changing a crew tire over three blocks or moving something that's impossible? You'd think, boy, how stupid can you get? Thirty minutes later and have a gun and drink, you'd be over there telling them how to do it. <laughs> Boy, you get smart, but you're not smart enough to know something wrong until after it's too late to do something yourself. But that's the first time that I ever talked to a person and tried to convince them. And incidentally, so far as I know, they're both still alive and they're both saying sober up to this, at least until last year they were sober. But I don't know when they went to Arizona and I don't ever heard from them anymore. So, anyway, as I said, after I got the club straightened out and got it all book organized and everything running smoothly and, and, and I was secretary out there and that helped a whole lot to keep me sober, why I began to really to work AA. And then I got overboard in AA. Everything was AA. There was no other, there were no more letters in the alphabet. It was all AA. And I guess that was good for me. 
because we're still not too congenial at home and with my in-laws and mostly outlaws, I didn't have too much conversation with them, so it helped me to stay sober, that's for sure. But as time went on, I began to realize this is it. Then I began to enjoy being sober. But it took me approximately five years, I would guess. Of course, I'm a little dense after I got down to the point where I was reasoning things out in my own mind. It took me about five years or so before I really began to get the effects of being AA, before I began to feel that things were going right for me. And in those five years even, every now and then something would be said, that quick I'd want to drink. And it always, I would have, just seemed to have some effect on my saying, God, get me over this craving. But, and then I, I talk to people about it. They say, you'll always have that craving. But I have finally whipped that after these years. I don't have a craving anymore. I don't even have a warrant of a drink. Or it never goes through my mind. Only when I'm at a meeting and I see guys that need AA and are doubtful of whether it works. I'll tell you another little story. I was leading a meeting down in one of the big meetings down in New Orleans. I do a lot of running around in AA. I go down to the Midwest and down around the coast and do a lot of fishing. So I was leading the meeting and they was talking about embarrassing things. I said, man, if I tell you embarrassing things that happened to me, you wouldn't believe it. I'll tell you something else, so don't ever tell him how long I've been in AA because he's, oh, he's a damn liar. Ain't nobody going to stay sober that long. You're nuts if you stay sober that long. You didn't need AA to start with. But So it's best to say, well, I've been sober overnight, that's for sure. But anyway, this guy said, uh, well, you tell us the story. Well, you know, I never liked to drink a whiskey that I ever drank in my life. Now, that's hard for some people to believe. I've heard people say, oh, I just love that stuff. Al Cosby told me, he said, man, I just love that stuff. He said they wasn't nothing that was any better than that. And I never took a swallow of booze. That I, sometimes I had to swallow that stuff five times before I'd get it down. I got the good out of a drink. But it, sometimes it didn't, come, it didn't stay down. That was the problem. And I was a running drunk. I'd started from home, and I'd go in the first saloon, down Sam Naylor's. You know old Sam. Go in there and put a double shot on the cup. And a guy standing right next to me said, have another one. I said, no, I don't want one. i got to go to work. So right out of there and go down the street, go in the next saloon, go through the same thing. Just keep going until finally it didn't make any difference. And no telling which direction I'd go as long as there was a saloon ahead of me and somebody to put on the cup. But I wound up down Tom and Jerry's. I don't know where you, any of you guys know where Tom and Jerry's is. Next to Kramer's Furniture Store. You know, they had the girls down there. Boy, they was pips. And they had a little handkerchief stuck up here in their pocket. And they walking down through that. So the old man and Jimmy, uh, the payroll. And the first time I'd been able to take the payroll. They thought maybe that would help me. And they sent me down here. And we had a man working in Kramer's Furniture Store. So he didn't give me too much money, but there was only two of them working down there, so I didn't have too much money. So I thought, well, I'll go in here and get a drink. See, the union said I had to pay him off at 11 o'clock that morning. So, so I waited, and I went in there, and I got my double, and I started, and it went down the first time, and I thought it was going to stay down. 
come back up and go, swallow it, whoop, swallow it. Finally, this little gal walked past me and come up and just squirt all over her. And boy, I'm telling you, that's embarrassing. But I sure, I didn't go back in there for about two weeks. <laughs> she never walked in front of me anymore either. But anyway, I was telling this story. And I looked down there, here come a guy up and he said, did you ever spit on anybody anymore? And I said, no, how'd you know I spit on anybody? He said, I was down there when you spit on that girl. <laughs> I can't remember his name now, but I've run into guys all over that I met here in Cincinnati. But as time progressed and things began to get wetter, better, not wetter, but better, I realized that God Almighty was the governing factor in this fellowship about Wallace and others. Then I really got to the point where I depended entirely on the thought that first came to me. And I have had excellent health since then. And for two years ago, I had a heart attack. I can't lay that on to him, but I can lay it on to what happened prior to finding him. So time has gone along real well. I have, I guess, I have been instrumental in getting about as many people in the fellowship of AA as any person in Cincinnati. Because I am honest, I am thorough. I tell the man exactly what he has to do, and if he wants it, I'm going to stick with him until he gets it. Just like Glenn Carr. Glenn wouldn't stay sober, I don't believe, if I hadn't kept acting all the time. But it's here. If you want it, it's here. Among the only people that can understand you. Nobody else, no, nobody can understand you that doesn't have the problem. That's the beauty part about it. You're afflicted with a disease that all the other people that's afflicted with it can help you. You can have heart trouble. You can have any kind of disease. And you can only find a few here and there that's capable of helping you and talking to you. But when you're on a drunk, you can find a lot of them that's in the same category. And AA has been instrumental in sobering up more people and getting more families back together than any other organization under the sun. And if you don't believe it, just look at the number of people that have patterned their lives and their clubs after the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. No telling how many of them. I've been called and asked to talk to a lot of these groups. I said, are they alcoholic groups? No, they're not alcoholic. Some of them have dope work problems. I said, thank God I don't have any dope problems. The only dope I got, I got drunk downtown and I had some money. And next thing I know, I was going with a guy to Indianapolis. The next thing I know, I was in Claypool Hotel, broke, didn't have any money, or had the worst feeling I ever had in my life. I didn't know how I got there or anything about it. And I don't know what I had, but it was really, it must have been potent, whatever it was. So I went down to Union Hall and got enough money to get home. And I didn't have any drink for about a week. I like never got over that and thought I was going to die and hoping for a word. I, I mean, I was really sick. But I can't sympathize with them because I never had that kind of a problem. But God help you when you do have, but I believe if you can be helped, it'll be here. I believe that. But it does help the alcoholic. Now, I don't know what all I, I could reminisce and tell you a lot of things, but I'm not too strong. And I get a little bit emotional. 
yourself. So I want to thank you people for coming. And I hope and pray that I get to come back. I can't even tell you a funny story. Thank you.